This is Corey, writer and producer of the Who Killed My Mother podcast. Before you jump into this episode, I just wanted to remind you that if you visit whokilledmymother.com forward slash newsletter, you can join my mailing list. When you do, I'll send you bonus audio episodes, the autopsy report, and other freebies just for being a listener of the show. I promise it's really free and I'll never do anything weird like sell your email for Starbucks points, so check it out if free stuff is your thing. And don't forget that there are also links to three free books in the show notes of this episode, so be sure to grab those too. And even if free stuff isn't your thing, I want to thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Everything hard is pulled from the earth and gathered here. The souls rise, smoke-white souls who listen through the black side of twilight, for the shut of a door, for someone come home. From the poem 1988, written by me, K.B. Marie, and this is the true story of who killed my mother. I open Joe's arrest record and refresh it as fast as my fingers allow. My heart is pounding, my face hot. The changed court date is the first thing I see. For weeks it said August 5th. Now it reads today's date, the meeting time at 9 that morning, six hours ago. I search the file updates, and the first case I find is the aggravated assault strangulation felony case. Its status reads, no lay prosequi, without costs. My stomach sours. The court abandoned the case. They chose not to pursue it. Why? How in the world could they just drop the charge? Then I see the note. Incarceration special conditions. Victim is deceased. They dropped the case because my mother is dead? Are you kidding me? Their only reason for not hearing the case is because she's dead? A whip-sharp headache cracks along the inside of my skull. How in the world did the case get dropped because victim is deceased? It's not like she was the only living witness. I'm alive. I called the police that day. I have a phone record to prove it. It's not like I couldn't testify. The police who came to the house could testify. They could relay what they wrote down, what they saw. Surely these details, the evidence, was recorded before a warrant was made. Just because she's dead doesn't mean he didn't strangle her. Her death doesn't annul the crime. And why hadn't anyone come back to the house, tried to catch Joe by surprise in the 17 months between the strangulation and her death, when my mother was alive, if the fact that her being alive was the sole requirement for the case to go forward? I think of how the cops came to my grandmother's house in the summer of 1990 and arrested my mother for an outstanding DUI. They had no problem showing up to collect her then. I don't see what's changed now. I don't know what I expected to feel. I mean, I'd known all along that there was a strong possibility he wouldn't be charged with her death. But now that he's free, even for the strangulation charge which I know he did, I'm so... 
I'm so pissed. There's a lack of clarity about how responsible he was for her death, but the strangulation was no contest. He did it. There were witnesses. There was evidence. How in the world does her death nullify that? Are you telling me that if I shoot someone and they survive, then they are later killed by someone else before I get arrested, go to trial, then I'm just good? Because they're already dead, so what? I didn't shoot them? I don't understand. I lament to every person who will listen. But really, I shouldn't be surprised. This is the old pattern. Just like the other 116 charges on Joe's record, nearly all of them had been dismissed or reduced every time. The two drug charges he incurred along with this arrest are no different. The other charge of which they had evidence, contraband in a penal institution felony, was also no lay prosequed. They didn't even convict him of having the drugs in his body, the drugs that they found, the meth and the heroin he intentionally tried to bring into the jail with him when he was arrested. And as maddening as this is, it's the third charge that I find most irritating. The misdemeanor, the possession or casual exchange charge, which says beside it, guilty. Surprise, he was actually convicted of the misdemeanor, the most innocuous of the charges. But what does it say beside incarceration special conditions? Time served. This is the third time he's been convicted of a possession casual exchange misdemeanor. In February of 2002, he got 30 days for his first possession misdemeanor. And in June of 2005, he got supervised probation for 11 months and 29 days in lieu of any jail time. And for this third charge, he only spent 20 nights in jail, no mention of probation or the fact that he's a repeat offender. In an alternate universe, had he been convicted of the felony drug charge of which they had evidence and the felony strangulation which he absolutely committed, that would have been his third felony. And Tennessee has a third strike law, three felonies, and it's possible to spend life in prison without parole. My mother's murder wouldn't have even had to see trial for justice to be served. But that didn't happen. Joe was set free. It's moments like this that illustrate why people are so disappointed in our justice system. How often it fails us. How often it should work, has every reason to work, and yet doesn't. How the rage from that disappointment of not being seen or heard can build inside a person, how it can make them feel helpless, hurt. I try to articulate those feelings to my wife Kim and to my friends who listen, how angry I am. They express their empathy, and despite the circumstances surrounding me, I find myself grateful again for all the loving, caring people who have come into my life in the last 15 years. All the people I have who love me, people my mother didn't have. And just like that, my anger folds into sadness, into heartbreak for her, for everyone like her, unheard and unprotected. Even if he killed her, I tell Kim, I'll never see justice. He's made of Teflon or something. None of these charges stick. Why? I wonder again if he's an informant. 
a narc for their drug department. Maybe I just write too much crime fiction. Or he really is that lucky. Lucky enough to be arrested shortly after the jail had a coronavirus outbreak. And as the cases rose, they probably sought to empty their cells rather than fill them. When I tell Katie I'm not coming to Tennessee on Monday as planned, that we can't possibly go to my grandmother's house because Joe will certainly be there, I feel a strange mixture of disappointment and relief. I'd been nervous about going, the thought nipping at the back of my neck for weeks, wondering if entering that house was a big mistake, if while cleaning, I would have poked myself with a dirty needle or found something I could never unsee. And now I don't have to. Katie tells me, all I can think is the universe is looking out for you. I hope so, I say. You're probably right. Katie also tells me not to give up, that the universe might surprise me, that situations like this are never resolved quickly, and I just have to be patient. In the meantime, do my best to find peace, to move on. What are you going to do next? She asks me, and I think about it. Then that night, before closing my eyes to sleep, I reply, call him. It's July 25th, 3.58 p.m. when I call Joe, almost 24 hours after I got the inmate release alert on my phone. I pace my office, his number on the screen of my cell phone, my thumb hovering over the call button. My heart is racing and my knees feel weak. Either sit down or fall down, I think, and cross my office out into our sunroom. I curl myself into the rattan chair, feeling the summer breeze ripple through the screens and tussle the long stems of the herbs I've been growing in the boxes along the window's ledge. I press call, hear the ring trill through the phone speakers. I focus on the large, heart-shaped leaves of the redbud tree, swaying in the sunlight, try to draw enough air into my lungs to breathe. I focus on the large, heart-shaped leaves. After a minute of slow, melodic trills, I'm starting to think he won't answer. Then he does. Hello? Hi, it's me, Corey. You were on my list of people to call, he says. I register the strained condition of his voice. It's high, strident, not unlike my mother's voice when she straddled the line between uncontrollable laughter and tears. I don't know if he's distressed or it's adrenaline or panic or if he's high on something. So I proceed with caution. Why were you arrested? I ask. I don't mention the strangulation charge or the warrant. I don't reveal that the police called me, asked me questions about his history of violence against my mother. Because I opened my mouth, Joe says. The cops were here and one of them said, just another dead junkie and I lost it, Corey, I lost it. He sounds like he's about to lose it now. No one's going to talk about my sister that way, not one person, no one. So they arrested you for fighting a cop, I ask. I knew I was going to get my ass kicked. I just knew I just didn't know how many of them it was going to take. Four of them, apparently. One knocked my teeth out, but I got in a good blow or two myself, you better believe it, and then they had to let me go. They just couldn't keep me after all that. Why not, I ask, keeping my words slow, 
measured. Because my lawyer got them to release their body camps and it showed the whole thing, showed them beating up on me and what they said. Even one told me that no one should have talked about my sister like that and I thanked him. I did thank him for that. So they arrested you for starting a fight and dropped all the charges because of the body cam footage? They had to. They had no choice. This is the first time I hear the story. The detective had made no mention of a fight or that my uncle had resisted in any way and there was no resisting arrest charge on his record, so I don't know what if any of this is true. This man lies like he breathes. Once he stole the stove and refrigerator from a firefighter's driveway while the home was being refurbished. The police went to the nearby recycling facility, found the appliances, and my uncle's face on the surveillance footage. He was arrested and held on a $15,000 bond. The lies he's told the facility attendants in order to sell the appliances for scrap. The lies he must have told the police to avoid arrest. Lies he's told me, lies he's told my mother, my grandmother. How much practice he must have. I tell Katie the story about the stolen appliances, but admit I can't remember when it happened. Of course, it takes her, my research assistant extraordinaire, no time at all to find the 2015 news article. I just got home, he says. Corey, it would kill you if you saw this place right now. If you could see this place, you would be in tears. It's torn up to hell and back. Why would they tear up the house? They thought I'd killed her, he cries out. They were looking for a murder weapon or something, I guess. I don't know, but this place is an absolute wreck. Why would they think you killed her? You said you thought it was an overdose. I reopened this old argument just to see what version of the story will emerge now, if anything has changed. I do think that, he says. I know what an overdose looks like, and she was blue just like that. He's sticking to the original script, his words unchanged. But how could she have gotten a hold of anything? I press him. You said you had everything locked up. His exasperation grows. Damn it, I don't know. I came home and my safe was busted open in the middle of the concrete patio, and I don't know if they did that or if she did that. Here we have our first variation in the story. He would have absolutely seen his safe dashed on the patio long before the police had come. My mother slept at one end of the house, in my old bedroom, and he slept at the other end. He would have had to walk right past the sliding glass doors and had a full view of the patio. Not to mention the safe was in his bedroom. In order for this story to be true, three unlikely things would have had to happen. Before entering my mother's bedroom and finding her dead, he would have had to wake in his room and exit it without noticing that his safe was missing. Unlikely. Second, he would have had to walk in front of the glass doors and not see a busted safe with his drugs all over the patio. Also unlikely. He would have had to continue to not see it or to check his safe after finding her, after calling the police after spending hours in the house waiting for them to arrive. Then there's the meth and heroin that he had in his body when he was arrested. He would have had to put that in his body, what, a whole day before being arrested? If his safe was missing? Because if he kept his drugs in there, when did he remove the heroin and the meth and hide it in his body? After she was found, and before the police came seems the most likely scenario. All of this is overlooking the glaring impossibility that my sick mother, with her chronic health problems, would have had the strength 
to dash a safe against the concrete long enough to crack it open and get to the drugs. At this point, I simply don't believe the story about the safe, at least not paired with the story that he entered her room Saturday morning and found her dead. If he really had come home in the middle of the night and found her collapsed in the floor, as he told in one version of the tale, maybe he wouldn't have seen the patio if it was dark outside. But wouldn't he have checked his safe at least once before the police came in the morning? Yet, maybe he's telling the truth. Maybe now, as we talk, his safe is dashed open on the patio, its contents spread wide in the hot July sun. But if so, the vandalism still would have happened after my mother died, not before. So it's impossible for me to believe that she broke into his safe and took something that would kill her. I was in there for 21 nuts, he tells me. It must have been hard. I say, and I do mean this. To go cold turkey when struggling with an addiction isn't easy. It must have been hell. Oh, it was nothing, he tells me. Really? I thought you were still addicted to heroin, I say. No, I was down to taking almost nothing. I'd weaned myself almost completely off of it. I don't know what to think of this. He makes no mention of the new drug charges nor the fact he was found guilty of a misdemeanor possession charge. And I find it hard to believe that a non-addict would be motivated enough to hide meth and heroin inside himself for any reason. Again, I realize he has no idea that I've been following him so closely. But since he hasn't brought up the charges, I don't press him. I took care of Mom, I say. Good, good, he says. He has something in his mouth. The chewing is as manic as his words. When I called down there and they told me that she was still in the freezer, that had pissed me off. And he does sound pissed, though with concern for my mom or another reason I can't tell. There was a delay in the paperwork, I explain, but it's done now. They're just waiting for the funeral home to pick her up. They told me it might take a minute. Yes, ma'am, it took me ten days to get my mama back. God, I wish he'd stop eating. Do you want some of them? He asks. What? I mean, not to be morbid, but I could send you some of them. Them, it turns out, is ashes from the family urn. He describes it like he has legions of family members stuffed into a single urn. But I do a quick calculation and realize he must mean my aunt and grandmother, because my grandfather was buried. Actually, I had to dump some of them out just to get the rest in there, he tells me. And this idea of him collecting all of the family and sticking them in a single urn disturbs me. I do not offer to send him some of my mother. Corey, listen. Things between your mama and I weren't perfect, but we loved each other. Quite a reversal, I think, from the your mother didn't love anyone but she loved you line he fed me on the morning she died. Like the time she hit me with a glass ashtray, that wasn't fun. Hit him with the glass ashtray? Is he delusional? Or does he really think I've forgotten what happened? That my memory could simply be rewritten if he told me enough lies? That he could confuse and manipulate me into trusting him? As if in just ten weeks, the medical examiner wouldn't ask me what the hardware in her skull had been for. If you come down here to get your mama, come by and see me, Joe says. Even if you yell at me from the end of the driveway, I'd still love to see you. I could never do this. What a slap 
in my mother's face if I did. I'd used his presence in her life, in that house, as a reason not to see her or my grandmother for years. I don't know that I could forgive myself if I saw him after she was gone. In this emotional whirlwind of a conversation, I've almost forgotten why I called. Joe, we need to talk about the house, I say. What about the house, he asks. Well, what do you want to do with it? Sell it, he says without pause. There's too many bad memories in this place. And here I think we might have something in common. If he wants to sell it, great. We can do that. Split the money and go on with our lives. Well, first, we need to sort the mortgage. The mortgage company keeps calling me, asking me for a payment, but they won't tell me how much it's for. They shouldn't be doing that. I'll call them and tell them to stop. But the mortgage, I begin. Don't worry about it, he says. I'm about to handle it. With what money, I ask. Drug money? Or a pending life insurance policy? That's irrelevant. I'll have it paid off here in a few days. Joe, my mother's name is on this house. That means it's half mine. I don't want it, and if you want to sell it, then let's just do that, I say, hoping to make it clear that I want to resolve this as peacefully and quickly as possible. There's a long pause, and then he says, Right, okay, well, I'd prepared for this. I'll have the lawyers get in touch with you, show you a copy of the will and all that. I hate that it has to be like this, but it is what it is. And he ends the conversation. The call lasted 27 minutes. Sometimes I forget that my uncle was only 15 when I was born. That when he was living at Nana's with us during my childhood, he would have only been in his early 20s. What I remember most clearly from those days were his love of aviator sunglasses and his resemblance to Jim Morrison. They had the same thick curly brown hair, and my uncle played a wild rift on the guitar. I was really into it, my Aunt Lana would tell me later as she described how she met and married Joe before birthing him two sons. The rock and roll boy vibe was sexy as hell. I remember my uncle standing shirtless on the side of the house, a little drunk, and pissing against the brick with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, the gold chain around his neck catching the light. Of course, that was 30 years ago. To update my memory, I search Facebook for a photograph and find one from 2013. His hair is still curly, but even longer, trailing past his shoulders and wiry ringlets. His eyes are still dark brown like my grandfather's. A sparse goatee and mustache surrounds his mouth. The acne pockmarks on his face haven't lessened with time. And he's still tall, still lean. But there is a deep sadness in his eyes that I don't remember. Joe from long ago had fire in him. His anger was so palpable even when contained beneath the surface of his skin. His words. I don't see the anger now. In this photo, he looks like a man haunted. My resolve wavers. My mind tries to reconcile the possibility that this man, who has caused so much pain, is also a deeply wounded man. It's not a comfortable position to occupy. It isn't like I can just forget what he's done. You might be wondering if my uncle ever put his hands on me, or if my mother was his only target. No, 
she wasn't. He's put his hands on my mother, on his mother, and the women he's dated. He's put his hands on his kids. I was told later that he'd broken his oldest son's collarbone by slamming him against the wall when he was 12 or 13. And yes, he's put his hands on me. It was when I'd driven to Nashville for my grandfather's funeral, March 2001. When I arrived, I found a house I didn't recognize. Things were much worse than when I'd lived there as a child. My Aunt Renee, who I'd only ever known to smoke weed or have a beer, was smoking a crack pipe in the bathroom. My uncle was yelling at everyone, opening and slamming cabinets, shoving people, me included, out of his way. I'd known that my grandfather had been the strong arm of the family, that he'd kept everyone in line with his will alone. I just hadn't realized how quickly things would devolve without him. I wonder if it began before his slow, painful death of emphysema. Probably as soon as he was too sick, too breathless, to put up a fight. When I found my Aunt Renee smoking crack in the bathroom on the day of my grandfather's funeral, told her that I thought she shouldn't be doing that in front of the kids. Joe's kids had both been under ten at the time. Joe had come to her defense. He called me a fucking dyke who needed to watch her mouth before he minded it for me. I responded with a similar explicative, and he reacted. He tried to wrap his hands around my throat, but I blocked this attempt, barely, breaking my sunglasses in the process. But this was hardly the worst casualty possible. I did follow with a hard shove that toppled him just long enough to give me a chance to run out of the house before he could attack again. I made it through the neighbor's back door about two seconds before Joe did. He was arrested soon after. I watched through the neighbor's window as he was shoved in the back of a police car, cuffed. I was told it was Nana who'd called the police. Of course, as we've already discussed, it isn't like he stayed in jail. Didn't you say there was a rumor Joe poisoned your grandfather and that's why he died? Katie asks. That's what his wife said, that Joe had helped him along with rat poison or something. If he's found guilty of murdering your mom, maybe they'll exhume his body and find out he killed your grandfather too. Then you'll be related to an actual serial killer. I think of my grandfather's unmarked grave in Mount Olivet Cemetery, of the fact that even though each of them, my grandmother, my uncle, and my mother, received money when he died, none of them bothered to purchase a headstone. Don't joke, I tell her. I want to write crime novels, not live in one. I call my lawyer that afternoon and tell him that Joe made mention of a will that he should reach out to Joe's lawyer and see if a will from my grandmother does in fact exist. Kim, Katie, and I expect this to be another lie, some ploy to buy time or to form another scheme, and I hate the idea that he is going to make this difficult, that if he resists, probate is definitely going to stretch on for years. So imagine my surprise when I get a call from my lawyer the next day. And in a sympathetic voice, he says, Hi, Corey. I'm sorry to bother you, but I have some bad news.
This episode of Who Killed My Mother was written and produced by me, Koi Marie, and the music was also written and produced by me. If you enjoy my storytelling, good news, there is a lot more of it out in the world. I have over 20 published books, including novels, illustrated poetry collections, and even this show is available as a memoir, to be enjoyed by yourself or by that friend who doesn't listen to podcasts. You can learn more about my work and all that I do by visiting whokilledmymother.com. If you want to do more, you can also support me on Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash For just a few bucks a month, you'll get early access to my soon-to-be-released content, as well as exclusive content. Not to mention that your support lets me know you enjoy what I do and you want it to continue. And if you can't offer financial support at this time, that is okay. There is still so much you can do. You can subscribe to the show, leave a review of the show, or recommend the show to your friends. And I would be so grateful if you did. And last but not least, as always, thank you for listening.